Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. All right. Welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. Today, we are joined by Victor Bell with Bell Capital. Victor, thanks for joining and go ahead and introduce yourself to all the listeners. Hey, how's it going, man? Thanks again for having me, man. I really, really appreciate it. It's weird to introduce myself. <laughs> but you know, I've been doing real estate since the mid-90s. I've done over $60 million worth of deals. It fluctuates ups and downs because I've been partners in other deals too. In over seven or eight states, primarily Hawaii, but you know, we've done just like all the other investors out there over the years from like the 08 crash all the way through to like, you know, Ohio, North Carolina. Georgia, Vegas, like I've done a lot of deals, a lot of deals, unfortunately, you know, so a lot of battle scars too, to prove that. <laughs> well, that's a so, good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And we moved to California about three years ago, three and a half years ago. Well, four years of December, I keep missing my number for the time that we've been here. Time went by fast. <laughs> and once we got here, I started to, because we sold our apartment buildings in Hawaii and I started looking at deals here and I was like, okay, we got to get into the bigger deals. Like things have changed. You know, we'll go over it, I'm sure, inside of the while we're talking on the podcast. But like, I knew that we need to get into bigger deals. So we know that we need to raise more money to get the actual right deals to last this next 10, 20, 30 years, right? As an investor. And to really just stop doing small stuff. I didn't want to do 20 unit apartment buildings in California, you know, that were five, six million bucks. Like, it doesn't make sense, you know, long term, you know. So that's that. It's a weird kind of blend of my <laughs> my intro. <laughs> well, and like a lot of people will tell you, is doing one or two big deals is not that much more work than doing six or seven smaller deals, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. And I've done that, be honest with you. And it's a lot of work. I mean, like it feels good and it's nice to, you know, go to parties with my buddies who all invest, like, yeah, we picked up another, you know, 10 unit building and you know, 17 unit building. And it feels good, but you know, I'm sure anybody who's been in real estate for a while, it's like, you know, like when the first date's over and you're like, oh, wow, I got to, you know, like it's time. This is, we start putting in that work, especially with multifamily. It's not an in and out deal. It's right. a long-term process, you know, 18, 24 months. You know, we were in our deals for 10 years, full cycle. That's a marriage, you know, with investors paying people back, following up phone calls, banker phone calls, and also trying to find more deals during the process while my kids got older, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, it's definitely a different feel. Well, I definitely like the trajectory that you're on. Before we dive into Bell Capital and what you guys yeah. are all about, how did you get into real estate in the mid nineties? How'd you get started? Okay, cool, man. That's a great question. So I got out of the military. I'm careful with this. I'll 
podcast because like I'm like people I have an interesting backdrop. So I left home when I was really young. I left my mom's house when I was 12, my dad's house when I was 14 to have my first kid by the time I was 15. So I was kind of one of those rebellious kids. But I joined the military when I graduated high school. I got out. And then as I got out of the military, I quit college after I realized that, you know, I had to pay money. You know, if I came back because I wasn't paying attention, I was kind of partying and having fun. I got in trouble and I had to get a job. I was on probation. And then while I was on probation, you know, and got this job, I got a job and everyone hated it. They were there for 10 years and they're like, we hate this job. I'm there for a couple of weeks and I hated it as well as the new people that started. So I got a book from the store. It was called Fast Cash with Real Estate by Ron LeGrand. And that first year I did a million two in real estate. You know, and that was in Texas back at that time. So, I mean, that's a lot of transactions if anybody wants to do the math in mid nineties or so, you know, some Texas deals. That was how I got started. So, but what I did was, but of all of those properties, only one of those was a single family house. The rest of them were multifamily, small multis, you know, duplexes, triplex, sixplex. I think there was like a 12plex in there, eightplex. So I kind of cut my teeth on the multifamily side and I made more money long-term from all those other ones that we did with a single family house because I got a partner and we got rid of the single family house. It was the biggest headache out of that whole package deal. And then I started learning just probably like everyone else, how to do creative financing and, you know, do options. Then they were, you know, assignments of contract. Now there's call wholesaling, but I didn't do that many of them. And I'm not a contractor. And I found the pretty house side of the business, the 72 deals, taking over pretty houses that were already really nice, already fixed up. That was kind of more my thing. One, because in the beginning, I didn't have a lot of money, a lot of credit. And that was a way for me to just kind of negotiate the deal, shake hands and do what I said I was going to do. But of all of those deals, I always raised money. I always had investors. I always had partners because I was the deal guy. So that's how I got started. And really, it's just, I mean, I do that full time. I've been doing it full time ever since then. That's how I take care of my family. I've built a business and a lifestyle around what we've done. But now it's time to, you know, like I said, I've shifted hats and said, okay, how do we expand over the next 20, 30 years? You know, how do we actually build a real estate company and not just, you know, make a few million dollars a year and, you know, big net worth and stuff like that, but it's still a grind. So I wanted to kind of be respected in the investor community as an actual businessman, not just, you know, a deal guy or a real estate entrepreneur. So, right. And so yeah. when you said you were the deal guy, would you be the one that finds the deal and manages it? Or how does that work? Yeah. You're, I, you know, get yeah. started. Yeah. So I found the deals, managed the deals. Even when we have property managers, I still manage the property managers. That was huge because we had a few, I mean, just like everyone else, you have a few deals where you have project managers, they're supposed to take care of it make sure the rents are being raised, make sure people are raising the rents. And then either you fire those managers or you go and you start you know, seeing that they're not doing what they said they were going to do. In 08, yeah, 08, 07, 08, we had to file for, I filed for bankruptcy because we had a deal in Ohio that was an apartment complex. It was a 40 unit deal. And the project manager was our property manager and they were stealing money, myself and a bunch of other investors that that happened to by this company. And I didn't know. And I had a broker go, hey, Vic, you need to get down here, man. Something bad's happening to your property. And sure enough, man, it was an eye-opening thing for me because that was the time when I thought I'd made it. I was like, dude, I'm crushing it now. Like I'm slowly out of these little deals. It's a bigger deal. And then after that happened, we went through that process. You know, we paid all our investors back. It was a, I was going to say a bad word. I'm not going <laughs> to, but it was a mess. I'll say that word. But what that did was I'm grateful for that experience because I had to turn things around. After I got out of bankruptcy court, we bought $11 million worth of real estate in the next like 90 day process right after. 
And that was all deals in Hawaii when before I wasn't even looking there. Right. You know how people say, oh, California, Hawaii, you know, all these places are too expensive. So they look elsewhere. They chase markets that are cheaper. I was doing that, too. So I was making my money in one place and I was putting my money someplace else. And then when that money got attacked in the lower price markets, I had to let that go and then go back to my roots. So, and this all happened in, you know, we're in Hawaii. So then I bought an apartment building. Then I closed another one. Then I closed another one. Then we bought like a beachfront property and then we bought something else. And then I was like, I learned how to operate my business in higher price markets with lower cap rates. You know, when people go, man, how do they make cash flow? There's a lot of cash flow there, but it's a different target as an investor. You're looking at the big bumps. You're like, hey, you know, we can generate two, three, four million dollars in this deal in relatively 24 months. And the cash flow just sustains the debt. Big difference. So, you know, it, it was a pendulum swing. You know, I had a good buddy of mine that's a broker there, show me what to do, tell me I was doing it wrong and, you know, why I got hammered and, you know, how he wasn't. And then I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know. So that was that experience. And it was kind of a big turning point for me in my career. So that's actually one thing. I mean, I live in Oregon. Oregon's a fairly high price market relative to where we're at. Absolutely. You have, yeah. you have Washington, California bordering us. So those are right. probably a little bit higher price, but Oregon's still high price market compared to other parts of the country. Yeah. I love and, Oregon, man. It's a great market. We, I have friends that have invested in North Carolina and you know other Midwest states, Florida, all that good stuff, trying to chase the more affordable market. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I don't know if they still own the properties or not, but I know they've offloaded a few of them. And in two years, you know, they kind of just did the break-even thing and the yeah. cash flow was cool, but they had an expense that kind of wiped it out. So for mm -hmm. people that are chasing those more affordable markets versus looking at a higher price market, what would you say is the big thing to look at when you're focusing on a higher price market like California, Hawaii, you know, Washington, those types of markets? Right. So I have a theory. Like I said, you guys can test it or correct it or email me or call me if you doubt it. But because I was in Hawaii, I watched a lot of guys, like you said, like in Oregon, they make a lot of money in Oregon and then they take their money and they go, let's go to Ohio. I did it too. Mm -hmm. The challenge is, you know, I look at it like we all watch like war movies or like, you know, castles. If you have all of your forces spread out everywhere else. So now you leave your castle unattended and what happens? A smaller group of people sack your castle. They can't. So that's what happens when I think people take their money, they go try to attack another market and say, hey, this month, this market is cheaper. They bring in a bunch of money over there and then they are driving their own prices up. The locals can't afford it. More people start to come down there and then they start to cash out. Well, while that's happening, somebody still has some property there, right? Your buddies probably still had property there. Cash flow starts to diminish. Values are starting to get a little iffy. Properties are staying on the market for a little longer than they should. And then all of a sudden, the people who have that money yank their money out of the market and they go back home. And all of a sudden, everyone's left holding the bag there, right? Right. That is all the time. You watch Ohio markets, Florida too. Florida's no different. I think California, like all of our markets, Oregon and stuff like that, we're going to survive. Those other markets, they are going to come down. The only thing propping them up is the big boys that's moving into Miami right now. So to your point, yeah, I mean, when you chase money, it's like chasing the wrong girl. Mm -hmm. Or guy, like it's like everyone wants this guy, like or girl, she's super cute. And then you chase her around, and when you finally, you know, like all of a sudden everyone wants her, you have her, and nobody wants her anymore. And it's like, oh wow, maybe she wasn't as cute as I thought. <laughs> and then you can't get rid of her, right? She's so or guy, it could be some needy guy out there. Yeah. So, but I feel like that happens in the market. So for all the people out there that's chasing it, I just say the same thing: don't chase those markets. And if you are gonna be there, you're gonna have to chase heavy cash flow because if the market if you get stuck down there, you got to have 
cash coming in to support it while it turns around. And it's going to take longer because right. to that point, if Oregon takes a dump right now, how long do you, Oregon's not going to take as long to turn around as Flint, Michigan. Right. Right. Even though people dump a bunch of money over there, you know, because it's like, hey, it's cheap. We can get properties over there. The rents are crazy. We can get our money back. Well, what if you need your money back over here in Oregon and you can't refi, you can't do anything. You got to wait. Now you're back to your, you know, your original way that you made money, which was trying to get a deal, you know, your own neck of the woods. And it's harder now because now you don't have that gusto. We've all done it. Another thing that you said too, was when you are focusing on a higher price market, Mm-hmm. Looking for cash flow that supports the debt, services the debt, versus a bunch of extra cash flow on a monthly or annual basis. Yeah, you're not going to do that as well. Like, you know, and some people may disagree with me on that. I don't know. I've just, I've had to play that game because I was like, okay, I'm going to stick to my market, which was Hawaii, California. The San Diego market is, it just literally goes right on top of each other. Mm-hmm. My buddy was like, hey, man, look, if you're looking to get like these 10, 15, 20% cash on, you know, cash flow returns, like you're not going to get that. But what you can do is you can find these properties are trading at a four cap. You're going to raise the rents and then they're still going to be a four cap because you have a limited product, limited people buying them. And, you know, everyone who owns whatever they own now, they're going to keep owning it. We know each other. Right. right. And then you're going to go ahead because the cap rates are so low when you raise rents by 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 bucks it's a huge bump in value. And then you can go back to the banks if you're using local banks like we do or any you know any type of commercial lender and say, look, this is what the debt will support now based on this income. And they'll say, fine, you know, we'll let you pull out your initial down payment. Now I use that to give that money back to our investors. Right. Right. So then we, our investors have been, de- you know, de-risked, they got their capital back and then we stay in the deal. So the deal still cash flows and debt services and gives some money out. But now we have this, property that we can hold on to. And for me, it was strength. It was like, hey, now we have this property. Now we move on to the next one. There is cash flow coming out because we're partners. And naturally when we sell, we double or we triple what we had in it, except there's no more money in it. Now it's just like this big windfall of capital. That was the game plan. And that's the same game plan. It's just now people are becoming more evident because people were forced to look at low cap rate deals across the United States when they weren't, they didn't need to do that. In the past, it was like, ah, the, you know, Oregon's cap rates are three and Florida's are eight or, you know, North Carolina's are seven. And then, you know, it's an easier look. But when you look at it from that perspective, like, no, we can raise the rents, same cap rates. It's going to bump values up and we can capitalize on that valuation we got by pulling our cash out. And then we have no money in the deal, take our cash flow for what it is. And we play more deals because now our money's back. That's going to become you know, a lot more evident for people. And that's how people have always made money. We just didn't know about it. I didn't know about it. You know, the brokers did. All my commercial broker buddies like, no, we've been doing this for years. I was like, oh, wow, I'm lost. I didn't know. (laughs) And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, Coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. 
Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. Well, and you hit another point. I was actually reading the hands off. What is it? The hands off investor by Brian Burke over the weekend. Nice. He debunked some of the cap rate myths. And what uh-huh. you said basically hits it right on the head where you have a four cap here and a seven cap there. Oh, everyone's going to want to go to the seven cap market. But in reality, cap rate doesn't mean cash flow or, or your cash on cash return. Cap rate is, you know, all cap rate is, is the market around yeah. whatever the property's at, not not your cash on cash return, not your, you know, your appreciation. It's just market sentiment, not nothing else. And a lot of people right. get confused by that. Right. As a matter of fact, we had a deal one time that we were, I was pulling out capital. We were doing a cash out a refi on an apartment building and the appraisal came back a little lower. I hemmed and hawed naturally because I'm the operator and stuff and I had investors in the deal and I hemmed and hawed at committee and I was like, you know what? This is off. This is jacked up. And you know, they can't change those things. I was like, but what can you do? They listed it at, I think the cap rate they gave was five and a half. I was like, there's no way this thing's a five and a half stable properties around it are good. And to your point of knowing a cap rate is a cap rate, it's somebody else's opinion of value, right? It is like, regardless, the banks use it. So when I looked at what they had also did debt on in the properties around mines, and I was like, so you guys lent on this property and you lent on this property and you lent on this property. I know the owners of those properties. Our rents are the same. Mm-hmm. Now, are you thinking that you guys made a bad loan on this property and their cap rates need to be adjusted if they come in for a refinance because you guys did the loan at this valuation? So right. is this valuation on mines now incorrect or is the past ones wrong on theirs? And they had to look and go, okay, Vic, I got it. What do you want? So to your point, when you understand that those things are happening, it's not just, hey, we bought this deal. Like, like you have to be in the game. This is a game. Right. And multifamily properties and how you play this thing, it is very different. Now, I couldn't do that if we were like, hey, we're at a 10% cap rate thing. They probably would have like, hey, you know, I think we're going to make our bet a little bit different and we're going to value it at an 11. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do anything about that. You know, but you know, that also goes back to knowing what you're doing. Like you have to take a look at it and say not just cap rates, but you also need to understand what everybody else is looking at them when they are using them. And again, to me, that's not higher level. So I apologize, but like I enjoyed this part. Like it's really to your point, it's someone's valuation, but it is an opinion. Right. Right. Like that's why the you know, the people say, like, oh, this big, you know. Trump, you know, Trump, I'm using Trump as an example because he's kind of the, the forefront. He said, well, he doesn't really know how much his values are worth. Yeah, he doesn't because at some point today he can wake up and go, yeah, I think my properties are worth $18 billion. <laughs> it isn't because he's going to sell them. It's just that's what he thinks they're worth. And if he wants to, he could be like, you know what? If I'm going to sell, I want a 2% return for him. I think I can support that. And somebody along the, you know, the bigger players, you know, the life insurance companies and, and some of these bigger institutions, if they want to fulfill a gap, of paying their investors one, 2% return, they can take those assets. Where else are they going to get them? So the higher cap rates and the lower price investments, they're only, they only affect us, mm-hmm. which goes right back to why I'm like, hey, we need to start a fund. We need to start getting into that game and start really learning. Even if it takes us 20 years to get to the five, $6 billion level, if we don't play that game, we will never be able to play it. It ends with guys like me and you who had good intentions, but we never did anything about it. So, you know, we can't really build a company around us, you know, long-term without it. Right. Well, and that's a great segue into Bell Capital. So tell mm-hmm. us about Bell Capital and what your plans are going forward and what you've already started with. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have a fund right now. It's a 506C, meaning it's an accredited only fund. It's a $50 million fund. You know, we've circled capital already and we're in the capital raise phase because last year we're raising capital, putting all the ducks in a row and kind of going after some assets. But then the underwriting's changed as the debt market started to change. And we're like, hey, you know what? Let's hold off. Let's kind of see what's going to happen here. Not from a hold off scared thing, but we just saw some other opportunities that are going to present themselves, right? So Bell Capital is really set up to be a more, this fund is more of an optimistic fund to say, look, as the opportunities present themselves, we're going to need dry powder to do it. And you can't play a guessing game because, you know, now we're dealing with, you know, more sophisticated people. And the first question is, where's your equity coming from? Can you get the debt? Things like that. And we need to fulfill those answers and having all the Bell Capital structured that way makes it make sense. This fund, you know, for people, you know, like for people who understand funds or even just get it, it's a long-term investment. It's a 10-year fund. Well, seven to 10 years is how it's structured with an 80-20 split, 80% to our investors, 20% to us. And I did it that way because I think when I watched everyone else's bigger fund structures, that's how they're done. And it doesn't make sense to do something that the bigger players are not doing, right? If you can structure it that way, do it. So that's why we did that. And all of our investors, they're more they like that. They're like, okay, that makes more sense without all the, you know, the weird words and upside down, different waterfalls and performance hurdles and all this other stuff. We just made it very simple for us. And that's been working very well. And it also allows us to, because brokers want to know how your fund's structured too. Like, hey, how'd you structure your fund? Mm-hmm. And if you're all over the place with that, they're like, okay, you know what? I don't think this guy's going to be able to pull the trigger. Even if they do have capital, right. something's going to go wrong. Right. And they don't want to be pulled into court later, (laughs) (laughs) you know, either. So, you know, with an asset that you went through them and they were actually the facilitator of it because their reputation is also on the line. So, you know, so all of that goes along with structuring the fund, you know, that thing through. So when you are raising capital and let's say you hit your first 10 million, are you going to keep raising capital or are you going to be looking actively looking for deals And how many deals would you expect this fund to own by the time it's all said and done? No, we're still raising. We're we're not going to stop raising capital. This fund, we can get up to $50 million in this fund. We have about 7 mil circled right now. And as we push past that, you know, as much as we can get, probably going to get about 40 in there. And within that, we'll probably get about two to three deals within that fund because 40 million gets us around about, you know, $120 million worth of assets. So now that ranges, that's going to range somewhere around 400 units. That's the goal. And then we'll set up fund two. We'll probably set up fund two along the way. But my goal for that one is for it to be a reg A fund. That's the goal because I'm watching what's happening right now. I believe that the reg A fund may become a little bit more scrutinized, you know, for new people coming in the door. And once you have one, I think, you know, they'll let you keep doing it. It'll be a lot easier. You know, be like, hey, you already have one you know, same scrutiny, but we understand, you know, what you're doing as opposed to somebody three, four years from now that tries to get into it later, they may not have the same, there's going to be some more case. I believe there's going to be some more cases against people who are doing stuff that'll build up for less and less people to have access to that opportunity. So to your point for my future, fill this one up. We'll probably get two to three deals within this one. We'll start fund two. My goal is for it to be a reggae fund so we can have accredited and non-accredited investors in there. But that'll be a bigger fund than this one. That's my goal as we continue to push forward. Again, I'm probably going to have towards the end of this 10, 20 funds. I'm never going to stop because I feel like this is the way. And something I tell everybody is like, wealth is my duty. And what I used to do in the past was make like, 
you know, money and, and, and close them other deal. And it became this thing. But now I'm like, I want to create wealth for my family and the people who invest with me. That's what I've been doing over these years, but I didn't have a vehicle like this where I can do it with more people, where I can have this conversation a lot more freely. So that said, and I'm sure you are too. You're looking at your own investments and your own potential growth and go, look, this is not just a game anymore. I want to build wealth long-term for me, my kids, my grandkids, and everyone else around me that want to do this with me. So it's becoming required. So yeah, so that's huge for me right now. And hopefully I'm sure it's huge for you too, or you wouldn't be doing a show like this, right? Yeah. So with this first fund, you said you're going to have, you know, four deals, roughly 400 units, Yeah. yeah. three deals, roughly 400 units. And you Mm -hmm. said it's a seven to 10 year fund. So I'm assuming that means investors are getting monthly or quarterly returns. Yeah, they're going to after seven to 10 years, you'll dispose of all the properties and everyone gets the lump sum. Right, right. So typically in my past, the way my deals have always went, can't say this is going to be like that, can never do that. But like I said, we always refinance either after three to five years anyways, depending on the terms of whatever the debt we had. And then I gave my investors their money back and we stayed on for another seven years. And then we sold. But with these properties, because they're bigger, we're going to make a decision about that. It could be refinance, give everyone their money back and just keep them in the deal. And then at the end of the seven or 10 years, we can look and say, okay, here's what the market's doing. And can we double or triple our what we had in the deal, even though we have nothing? Can we still do that? Or it may be a situation where we're like, hey, you know what, guys, we're going to keep these assets for a little bit longer. Never know. It depends. So it really that's but the I mean, every fund has to end its time, right? Everyone has to exit, which is what we see happening. So to answer your question, yes, seven to 10 years on the whole, the goal is to get have them pay everybody per month, give all their money back throughout the duration of this. And then turn around and close out the fund and liquidate and sell out all the assets, you know, or we may repurchase them depending on where we're at. But yeah, this is going to be a long-term play. And naturally, all my investors, I talk to them about that. I wouldn't buy a deal inside of the fund, even on a seven to 10-year hold, without that deal being a deal that I still wouldn't want to own for another 20, 30 years after. It still needs to be a great deal. So yeah. And And the deals that you're looking at, are they value add deals? Are they class A, what do you normally look at? Yeah, they're very light value add. You know, they're called core plus, you know, they're value add, but you know, so B properties that could be turned into a B plus or they're B plus that are kind of on the cuff of some light upgrades that could make them, I guess, a B plus plus or something like that. I don't really look at the A class properties right now, but to your point, and there's a range of when people say value add, a lot of people are thinking differently. I just really think upgrades. Like I said before, I'm not a handyman guy. I don't really do a lot of fixer uppers. Even when I do single family stuff, it's subject to pretty houses. So, you know, for me, it's like parking lot, palm trees, you know, paint, more lighting, make the place look bigger, nicer, treat people nicer. To me, that's added value to an asset or there's management inconsistencies. Maybe they're not paying attention for a little bit. Maybe they're, you know, they had the property, they've executed some of their value add plan they need somebody to now come over and take over, right? For where they've left off. So, but yeah, all of my stuff still has some meat on the bone because we need to know one, is it making money now? And two, will it continue to make money for us? And what do we need to do to get that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you say paint palm trees and parking lots. We don't have any palm trees up here. So that's a, ah. that's a, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Can you imagine if you bought a place and shit palm trees there? You would be the only property with palm trees and you would name all of them. Like Oregon Villas. <laughs> that might be a good strategy going there forward. There you go, man. The only <laughs> the only place is your own little oasis, dude. That would be awesome. <laughs> so, and I mentioned this before we started recording, but 
the fund aspect is something that I'm fairly inexperienced with. Obviously, I know what it is and I know how they operate to an extent. Uh-huh. But for us, we, you know, we focus on syndication where it's, you know, 20 to 70 unit deals right now. Right. right. That are class C that need value add or maybe a B minus that need value add. Right. I'm assuming the fund is basically the same principle, just on a larger scale. It right? is. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like, you know, syndications are one deal and then with a fund, you can get more than one. Okay. So there's a level of diversification. So to your point, there's not really any difference other than in the syndication, you find a deal, you lock it up, you raise the money, you put all the investors together, share with them the plan and the and the returns. They say yes. And then that deal moves on. And then you go get another deal and you repeat that process. Right. As opposed to, for me, I like the fund model because I was going to do a syndication initially. And I was like, ah, I don't want to go through that. We're already doing that on an individual basis. So like it made more sense for me to say, look, we have a fund. We, you know, that we're doing a blind raise, you know, which everyone says it's the hardest one, but it's hard to raise money whether you have a deal or no deal anyways. You still need to know what your principles are, what's your investment strategy and your thesis. Mm-hmm. So for me, it just made more sense. I was like, look, I'm only going to do these type of deals. And I'm sure you can probably agree. You can raise money all year, but you can't close deals all year, right? Like, right. like it's an unlimited process. So why not set yourself up to say, look, I'm going to put a team together. We're just going to raise capital and we're going to hunt down deals. And when we get the right deals, we're going to deploy that capital. We'll do that. And we can still raise capital because now that piece is done and close another deal. And then when we feel like we've got the right amount of properties and this right amount of fund, you know, the sizzles going down, we'll close the fund out. That's good. We'll lock and reload and then we'll load up for the next fund. But during that time, we can use fund one to start showcasing, hey, here's what we've done. Here's what we're doing. And here's what's going to be happening in the next fund and the quality of assets we're going to be going into that fund. And you can talk about diversifying instead of just saying, hey, if this one syndication goes south, yeah, sorry, guys, we lost our money. And hopefully, you you know, we can pay you back and let's figure this out. You have a little bit more. To me, my investors like the thought. They're like, you know what? I think that just makes more sense for what, especially for me, like I share it that way because I've watched my buddies, you know, have issues with it. They're in two syndications, one's tanking, and they got to go have that conversation with new people because they have this other deal. I'm like, hey, well, how's your other deal going? Like, oh, wow, it's not doing that good. We're doing this and we're doing cultural capital. And, you know, like, okay, so why don't you, what's, you should focus there. You know, yeah. it's, it's one of my highlight conversations I have with people. It's like when investors or operators are having challenges and they're not getting paid, they have to go to something else. And that's tough. But with a fund, you know, you can really focus the right way. And you're under the stress of like, I got a noose around my neck, right? And it could be different. Other people may be having a different experience than I am, but I set this up that way. Like I said, I want to make this piece my duty and say, look, how do I sit on the other side of the table? And we just focus on raising capital and deploying capital and the good deals, managing our managers and our team and put a good team around us. And then we can actually build a company around real estate instead of real estate around my company. Right. So very different. That's been my experience though. So, but I think if people don't have a fund over the next five years, they're not going to be able to get good deals. They won't. It'll just be guys like me who's figured it out and who kept raising capital and they got dry powder. And if it's between somebody who's going to syndicate one deal or you come to me and I'm like, Hey, I have a hundred million dollars or we got 50, $75 million sitting in an account. Here's that. Here's it is. And you know, it's, our capital, I'm the only decision maker and I can make that decision quickly and I want it. They're going to probably go with me. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, to be able to eliminate, you know, competition, you know, which is what it's going to kind of turn out to be over the next few years, you know, as some of the bigger boys start to offload some of the bigger assets, we want the opportunity to do that and not just be a syndicator. 
with the fund though, you could in theory invest with a co-sponsor that, you know, let's say a syndicator has a deal wrapped up. You could then bring a capital raise and be a co-sponsor or you're not interested in something like that. Um, right now I'm not, you know, because, you know, first, you know, it takes a lot of work to raise capital. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, in the education space, oh, you can raise capital, you do this and it's going to happen. It is a lot of work. <laughs> you know, so to even syndicating a deal, like raising money for one deal for one investor is a lot of work. So like for us to build what we're trying to build right now, we aren't actually raising money to give that money to some other operator when we're operators, you know, at heart, well, I'm an operator at heart and go, yeah, go for it. And let me, and hope that shit goes well. Sorry about that. Hopefully <laughs> it go well. And then I got to go back to my investors and go, Hey, you know what? We invested in this place and it's not going well and we're going to take it over. Don't worry guys. we got it. Like, you know, like before I even started a fund and I got into doing what I'm doing, I didn't even know that people were doing that. I didn't know people raised the fund to just go give money to other people that have a fund. I had no idea. Like I totally green in that space. I'm not from finance. I didn't go to Wall Street. You know, I didn't go to college for any of that stuff. Like I've always been a consumer of capital and I've been a real estate guy. But now that I understand that and I talk to a lot of people, I talk to people who do fund the funds like you're talking about. And I'm like, how's that going? They're like, oh, it's going great. And then I catch another group of people like, ah, you know what? We had to step in. I'm like, wow, like how did that work out with your investors to be able to like, you know, I know you have these controls in place, but why don't you guys just raise capital and then deploy it into your own deals where you're more than just a fund of funds? And they're like, ah, that's not our thing. So it turned into preference. So to your point, no, our fund is not structured like that. We get asked that all the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll do that later after we get up maybe to about 2000 units, we'll set up a separate fund and we just have all that mastered and we have our investors that say, look, Vic, you're a great picker. And that means you'll also be able to be a great picker of operators. Then we'll do that. But that definitely will be in the future. Got it. Okay. In the future. So keep doing your thing, dude. That may be you. (laughs) That may be me and you partnering on something later. I would like that. So (laughs) Down the road, we'll reconvene and figure it out at that point. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So how can people get to know you more and check you out on social media or online? Wow, dude, I'm everywhere. First, you can start with Google. You can Google Victor Bell. You can go to bell-capital.com. That's our website. You can schedule a call and talk to myself or someone on my team. Or you can you know, just go there, go to the portal, you know, click get started, and it'll take you to the portal. You got to be an accredited investor. You can take a look at our private placement, our fund docs, you know, our strategy, what it is that we're doing. And then if you want to set up a call to talk to anyone on my team or myself about your personal situation, we can have that call. You can go to bell-capital.com slash book. You can get a copy of my book. That's this one, my face on it. So you can do that. Like I said, a lot of information about there. I wanted to do that because people who invest, I wanted them to know how I thought. And then also some of the terms, what we're doing, why I do it that way. And if you want to do it, if they want to do it themselves, they can. You know, and again, you can go to Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. I have tons of videos out there. So things like that. So, but I'm easy to get a hold of. You can even call or text me at 808 778 1326. Boom, that's there. I love talking to people, especially about real estate. I'm not out of touch right now with my investors or people out there in the public. So, anything you guys need, I'm here. And what's your book called? It's called How to Create Wealth Through Investing in Apartment Buildings. You see that? I'll have to, I'll have to go get myself a copy. There you go, man. You'd be, I'd love to do that, man. Let me know. You can download it for free. It's right there. It's a digital copy. So, you can get it right away. I appreciate it. Well, Victor, thank you so much for joining me today and talking about Bell Capital and funds, real estate funds, which is something, (laughs) like I said earlier, that I haven't had a whole lot of experience with. So I appreciate you getting down to the nitty gritty and sharing your story and talking to us today. 
Absolutely. You know what? Thank you for having me. This was great. You're a great interviewer, man. You made it real easy for me. I really, really appreciate it. Love your show. And uh, if there's anything I can ever do, let me know. Gotcha. I'm right here. Thanks, Victor. Hey, thank you, bro. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.